Warning, the Federal Communications Commission requires that we inform you that this episode of the Derek Duvall Show may contain content inappropriate for children. Listener discretion is advised. The FCC also requires us to inform you that this episode may contain the words f***, s***, asshole, mother boy, dumpster, galloping quit, but in like a British way, and also, strangely, cul-de-sac. Once again, this show may contain content not suitable for anyone but the coolest children. Listener discretion is advised. Powered by Transistor FM. Welcome to Friends, Foes, and Neither. Do not adjust your podcatcher settings, as what you are about to hear is real. It's the Derek Duvall Show. Prepare yourself for insightful interviews with incredible people. Join us now as we delve ever deeper into the human condition. And now, coming to you live to tape from the Derek Duvall Production Bunker, it's Derek Duvall! Hello, Duvall Nation. Hello. Hey, everybody. Hi. Thank you so much. Please sit. Thank you. Hello, Duvall Nation, and welcome to the Derek Duvall Show. That's right. We are back with another fantastic journey into the lives of extraordinary people. Happy Pride Month, everyone. We at the Derek Duvall Show are always proud to stand with our LGBTQ brothers and sisters as the fight for equality continues. If there is a Pride event in your area, I strongly encourage you to attend some of the most fun you will ever have with some of the nicest people you could ever be around. I promise you that. All right. So before we jump into this episode, I want to say a huge thank you to my last guest, Jill Donovan. As you can tell, I was in complete awe that Jill was on the show. And as someone who is always looking to be inspired, Jill dished that out in Aces and Spades. So Jill... Thanks ever so much again for coming on the show. And when your next book is ready, the offer to return to the show stands. If you have not heard our incredible interview, I strongly encourage you to check it out after the conclusion of this episode. So welcome to episode 158, and we have a fantastic episode lined up for you today. We have with us Dr. Andrew Owens, PhD, who teaches at the University of Iowa. Dr. Owens will be talking about the courses he teaches, the power of the horror genre in modern cinema. We have some great conversations about the current state of the film industry. He takes a few of your fan questions, and we talk about his book, Desire After Dark, Contemporary Queer Cultures and the Occultly Marvelous Media. Great title. This is a very in-depth interview, so get a cup of coffee brewing, folks. Duval Nation, please welcome to the show, calling in today from Iowa City, Iowa, Dr. Andrew Owens, Ph.D. Good evening, Dr. Owens. Welcome to the Derek Duvall Show. How is the weather out by you today? Above freezing, which Above freezing. for Iowa this time of year is saying something very positive. <laughs> <laughs> so I start my interviews off with the same as any other. And it's, how has it been for you to navigate the COVID-19 pandemic? Yeah, COVID has been very difficult, especially for folks in academia, as I am, that when we first got word of the impending transition that so many institutions would face in the spring 
of 2020 it was March. I, it's one of those moments where I remember exactly where I was when I got the email from the university that we were going online for the first time. And we were all required to turn our courses into virtual spaces in 10 days. Mm-hmm. And so the scramble to do that was challenging, to say the least. But there are skills and aptitudes that I think myself, my colleagues, our students have taken out of that that I still incorporate into the classroom. So it has in some ways forever, I think, changed the shape of what higher ed looks like. I'm not sure that's totally for the bad, um, but it certainly has been a challenge to navigate. Mm. So every journey has a beginning. Where were you born? What was it like to grow up there? I was born in Mount Holly, New Jersey, but very quickly moved to Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, which is on the eastern, very eastern side of Pennsylvania, uh, the aptly named Christmas City, for obvious reasons. It's about an hour north of Philadelphia, and it was a wonderful place to grow up. I was very lucky. I'm an only child, so I was lucky enough to have parents who were very involved in my life academically, extracurricularly. I went to a massive high school, which was not always the greatest thing. I didn't know everybody. There were over 700 people in my graduating class, uh, which is why I chose to go to a much smaller liberal arts institution for my undergrad education. But it's a place that I still call home. And my parents still live there. I still have family and my ties to the East Coast are still very strong. So that's nice to know that I still have a place to call home, even though I have traveled pretty extensively across at least the eastern and midwestern part of the country. Hmm. Now, I see you went to universities, Villanova and Northwestern. Do you have any favorite memories from your time there? I remember I was at Villanova for my master's program one of the years when their basketball team won the NCAA championship. And that was exciting for sure. It's a bit of a different experience when you're a graduate student as opposed to being an undergrad. But that was certainly a lot of fun. And Northwestern was a complete joy in that it is the sort of northernmost suburb of Chicago without it being Chicago, right? Mm. That there is a literally one street that separates Chicago from Evanston. And I loved everything about living in that area. I loved Chicago. I loved all the resources. The university was wonderful. And so I have very fond memories of both of those places. Um, I'm very tied to Philadelphia. I went to undergrad at a small college outside of Philadelphia. Villanova is also right outside of Philadelphia. So I've tended to find myself in sort of suburban locations that are adjacent to major metropolitan areas. I've found that I really like that a lot. Nice. Now for my listeners, what is your CV, just out of curiosity? So my CV educational wise is I have a BA from Swarthmore College in English Literature a master's from Villanova in English and a PhD from screen cultures from Northwestern. Mm. At what point in your life did you decide, Hey, I want to pursue a career in education. 
I think I had always had an idea about being an educator. My dad, growing up, my dad was actually a men's clothing salesman. Um, He and a friend of him owned a men's clothing store in our hometown. And when I was very young, that sort of went by the wayside. He went back to school and got his master's in education and became a junior high school teacher. And so I was surrounded from a very young age by people who were educators. I was always, I took to school very easily that I had always been a good student. And I found that when I began approaching my undergrad career, I initially was going into college thinking, I'm going to be a lawyer, right? I wanted to be a lawyer that I remember in my high school yearbook, it said, you know, Andy's going to Swarthmore College, intended major political science. I never took a political science class in my life. (laughs) So it turned out that when I got to college that I sort of fell in love with literature. I fell in love with texts and moving images, which is where still my main interests lie. And so that's where I had always known that I wanted to teach. And I had such a wonderful experience as an undergraduate being able to attend small classes, getting that sort of individualized attention that part of my mission as an educator has been to sort of pay that forward because I had, I was lucky enough to have that experience and I try my best to pass that on to the students that I teach. Hmm. Now you are currently teaching at the university of Iowa, giving instruction in, I got, I have to say this right. Cause I don't get it all correctly. Film studies, contemporary cinema, race, gender, sexuality on screen, history of the American horror film, American exploitation, and screening sex in America. How long did it take to set up these classes, and which of these are the subjects you enjoy teaching the most? It took a little while. Um, I was hired at Iowa about six weeks prior to the semester starting in 2018. (laughs) So I had to hit the ground running quite quickly. But I'm lucky enough that I I had very supportive colleagues who provided syllabi and other advice. I had been an instructor throughout my time at Northwestern. I also, when I graduated, had a visiting appointment at Boston College where I developed some courses. I had also taught previously at DePaul University in Chicago. So I had a decent slot of things in the bank. Mm. And when I came to Iowa, I was hired to really be the gateway instructor for our department, for our lower level courses that introduce students to the major. And that's been something that I've really taken to. I As much as I love teaching my specialty courses, as you mentioned, History of the American Horror Film, American Exploitation, which were upper-level seminars, I really love the introductory classes, getting to meet students who are first years or second years, who don't have much vocabulary when it comes to media studies, but I love seeing those light bulbs come on. Uh, My favorite class that I teach is probably my Race, Gender, and Sexuality on Screen course where 
they are seeing things that many of them have never seen before, again, in terms of representations of intersectional identity categories. And it's been a real joy to see them just to sort of take to that and run with it. And I think that we're in a moment where those things are so prescient in our everyday lives, in the news, that my ability to create a bridge between their undergraduate education and what's happening in the real world is something that I take really seriously. So I had Tom McLaughlin, one of the true masters of film horror, on the show a few months ago. And he was talking about the current state of the horror genre. Now, you mentioned to me a renaissance that is taking place right now in that genre. Can you elaborate for my listeners? Yeah, I think horror is in such a fascinating spot right now. Uh, I am, you know, in terms of my research interests, primarily genre studies on the one hand, mostly horror, a gender and sexuality and critical race studies scholar on the other. And when those two things come together, which they often do, all the better. <laughs> and horror is in such a fascinating moment right now and has been for quite some time, at least for the past, say, five or 10 years, in that we're in a moment that some people have variously called elevated horror, post-horror, where we see studios like A24, for example, who are making what they believe are award caliber right, movies that are 100% horror films. Right? And so it's been fascinating for me as a scholar and as a teacher to watch this happen and to see people really push quite hard for the elevation of a genre that has been so degraded on the cultural hierarchy for so long you know horror has always been treated as a low object but so many people now want to raise horror right to the level of being art and being interesting and being psychologically complex being narratively complex as i said a24 is probably the uh, poster child for that right now in terms of studios but directors like robert eggers and ari oster both of whom have worked for a24 are really doing fascinating stuff in making people think and i would say actually rethink what horror means I was about to bring up is in your opinion, who are the best horror directors working? Who, who else would you put in that caliber? Yeah, I think Robert Eggers, Ari Oster are fantastic. Uh, I would say the person who maybe is the most public facing of these folks is Jordan Peele, right? who is sort of leading the charge in a more mainstream way, certainly than those other gentlemen that, the breakout remarkable success of get out and sort of catapulted this movement to a different stratosphere although interestingly and some of my colleagues have written about this jordan peele has never once called get out a horror film and he did that intentionally mm -hmm. because he knew historically horror films don't win oscars and so in order for that film to get into the Oscar race and ultimately for him to win for Best Original Screenplay, he kind of had to play it safe. 
and mm-hmm. to not call it a horror film. He called it a thriller. Right? But then his follow-up, Us, he said, oh, no, this is a horror film. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's my question to you. This is, you know, 1991, Silence of the Lambs wins Best Picture. If actually sweeps the top five. Would you consider that horror or would you categorize it more like suspense or, or something like that? I think Silence of the Lambs is absolutely a horror film. Right? And I love it for that. And I often say to my students that, you know, that's the one, man. You know, that is the film that really changed the game for horror when it came to accolades. And that's not to say that it is an entirely unproblematic film, that there was a lot of pushback when it was released about its arguable transphobia in its representation of the main villain, Buffalo Bill. but. That film, as much as it skirts the line between what is a horror film and what's a thriller, I don't even know the answer to that because I think these categories are endlessly porous and fluid. But there is so much of Silence of the Lambs that is absolutely a horror film. And I sort of half-jokingly always say to my students, I've taught Silence of the Lambs before, and many of them do know what it is. And I say to them when we talk about sort of narrative arcs and about genre, the person I root most for in Silence of the Lambs is Hannibal. <laughs> I think he's the most interesting character. <laughs> that actually, if I may interject real quick, there is a very famous poll, and I see it every couple of months. It gets put on Twitter or what have you. Who did the best prison outbreak breakout? Sorry, who did the best prison breakout? Was it Hannibal Lecter or Andy Dufresne? And I think Hannibal Lecter had the most. He was playing the long game. So, oh yes, absolutely, yeah. and that's. That's what I love about that character. And certainly it it has much to do with Anthony Hopkins' portrayal of that character based upon Thomas Harris's novel. But yeah, absolutely playing the long game. I mean, that's what's so interesting about that character. And what I think is so interesting about this moment of horror that we're in, where you can watch a movie, sort of be blown away by it or be like, wow, and then rewatch it and go, oh, they were planning this the whole time. Mm-hmm. Right. And so those sort of nuggets or those Easter eggs, if you will, right, that are built in have made the genre really apt for rewatching, for looking at those really minute details and that actually make the film as rich as it actually is. I'm very curious. I recently, just this past weekend, saw the movie The Menu that recently came out with Ray Fiennes and Anya Taylor-Joy. And I really enjoyed it, and I'm curious to watch it again, because I know there are things in there, I'm sure there are, that sort of predict what's about to happen that I didn't notice the first time around, just because I was watching for plot. Right. In your, in your humble opinion, what would you say is the major appeal of the horror genre to people? I think the major appeal of the horror genre, I always go back to two major figures in horror criticism, Robin Wood and Noel Carroll, both of whom wrote extensively about the horror film. And I still agree largely with the two of them that there is something about the horror film that is the return of the repressed 
right? That the horror film allows us to vicariously live out our deepest, darkest fantasies and desires in the relative safety, you know, of sort of vicarious identification. Mm-hmm. Right? And I think there is something that has always been attractive about that, right? That we, and again, to use the Hannibal example as a springboard, that it it, it is true, at least for me, I think that oftentimes the appeal of a horror genre is the characters that are most interesting are the monsters, not the other people who are trying to kill the monsters, right? It's the monsters that are the most interesting. Mm -hmm. And so for me, I think that has always been sort of the main appeal. And as someone who writes really most specifically about queer horror, where my intersection with gender and sexuality and horror come together, is that that has been just such a natural fit for queer communities really since forever because of the what seems very simple but is actually a very powerful affective resonance which is the fear of the other right and both of those communities can sort of rally behind otherness right what are we afraid of right and horror brings us otherness live and in living color this is a question uh, that you submitted earlier and i really seriously I, I thought it this long and hard. And the question is, is how are academics bridging the gap between the academy and popular audiences? Yeah, I think it's something that many of my friends and colleagues had sort of decried for a long time where we saw major news outlets like CNN or MSNBC or even podcasts like this take on Right, media studies take on the representation of particular communities in film, in television, in digital media, but they weren't talking to the people that actually study that. Right, they were talking to other people. Right, and so recently, it's been very gratifying that I have wonderfully brilliant colleagues who have gotten the opportunity to be on. MSNBC to be on CNN series, right? And to give our expertise in what we study to a different kind of voice, right? And that's what I always try to do in my own work. As much as I know that I'm working within an academic academy and the majority of my writing is pitched towards that audience, I always write with a popular audience in mind. I want my work to be accessible because that if it's not accessible and no one can read or understand it then it's for naught right that putting knowledge out in the world right is about making it accessible is it about making people think and rethink what they might know right about particular genres particular screen formations and that's what i've seen recently happening and i think it's all for the good because it really it demystifies what we do as academics, right? That many people think that we just sit in our offices and write articles and books that no one reads, which is not true, right? And I would love it if we had a more forward-facing public profile where people knew the kind of work that we study. And I think a lot of my colleagues take that work quite seriously in 
taking seriously screen genres and even particular series that people say, oh, you know, that's trash TV or that's trash film. Why would anyone study that? Well, you study it because that actually, oftentimes, those are the things that have their finger on the pulse of our current cultural moment more so than anything else, right? So art cinema is wonderful, right? Art cinema is lovely and has its place, right? But if you're watching Real Housewives of Atlanta, mm-hmm. right, there's something to be said, right, for how the Real Housewives of Atlanta treat current gender politics, what it's like to live in the South among particular class structures in a way that's just more immediate, right, than other genres people might think could do that work. So when I told uh, my listeners you were going to be coming on the show about a week or two ago, uh, I had them submit some questions. I picked the most intelligent of all of them, and we'll go with this one. Start right off, seeing as you is kind of a, in your field of study. Uh, Martin's this this gentleman writes. Martin Scorsese and other directors have publicly scorned and discussed the dilution of superhero films into the movie houses. What is your take on that? I have to say, I'm I'm with Marty. On that one, <laughs> I, I do have to say um, it it blows my students' minds when I tell them I have never seen a single Marvel film, never seen a single Marvel film, never seen a single DC film of the sort of new universe, multiverse, call it what you want, mm-hmm. uh, for reasons that are one quite simple is that superhero films are just not my genre. But also, I believe very strongly in the power of media, in the power of cinema or television to do things that are interesting and innovative. And I have said to colleagues and friends for some time now, there is so little original intellectual property in Hollywood right now. Right, hundred percent agree. Right, that Marvel are our overlords, right? <laughs> and that I was recently teaching in my introduction to film studies class, my students, I was teaching about corporate conglomeration and the film industry. Right? And that, you know, Disney just, it, Disney's like a big old fish. It just, you know, eats everything that it can, right? It buys Marvel, great. It buys Lucasfilm, great, right? And so in a way, I understand, and I'm not decrying at all people who enjoy those things. I am absolutely for things that are out there in the world that people enjoy watching, that I do not decry that at all. But at the same time, it sucks the oxygen out of the room in that there could be space for so much more that's out there other than going to San Diego Comic-Con every year and seeing what Marvel has planned out for the next seven years. <laughs> and I, I say this sort of glibly, I could care less. <laughs> yep, totally fine. All right, so the next question is, uh, in your opinion, we mentioned horror earlier, who are the best film directors working today? Oh, gosh, that's a loaded question. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think that it's such an interesting moment and that we are seeing people who are, and I by no means mean this pejoratively, 
but sort of are in the twilight of their careers that are making probably one last or the second to last push that have been very successful, right? Um, I think, for instance, with the latest Oscars, you know, Jane Campion winning her Oscar for Best Director for Power of the Dog was long, long, long overdue, right? She should have won that Oscar for the piano. So that was long overdue. But there are up and coming folks, right, who, and I think many of them are actually, as I said, working in the horror genre currently, who are taking risks and are visionary and are doing things that are really different and are really just a notch above the normal, what I, I, again, I take as our normal sort of media scape of using like another Marvel film, another DC film, another Star Wars thing, right? If you can do something else that's actually interesting, I think you're winning in Hollywood right now. My biggest thing, I say this all the time, and I've, I've actually got a lot of pushback from people who I actually respect, is I think in terms of visionary and original, Jordan Peele, obviously, he's just killing it right now. I mean, nope, that was a genius idea. But the other one, and this is kind of like, I call him the dark horse in the race, is Darren Aronofsky. I am a massive Darren Aronofsky fan. I, and his work, uh, I think The Fountain, so criminally misunderstood, is one of the most powerful yeah. pieces of cinema I've ever seen in my life. But you ask you know, any Tom, Dick, or Harry out there, you put it in front of them, they're like, oh, I don't get it. You know, because it requires them to use a little bit more than, you know, explosions and, you know, and what have you. So, yeah. Right. Right. No, exactly. And I think people like Aronofsky have been around for a long time right, and are perhaps only now among a more mainstream audience getting their due. Film nerds have always known how good he was <laughs> from yeah. from the gate. Right. right. And so I think. And that has is often how it goes that people are like who, right? Mm -hmm. Until they get a film with a bigger budget, right? Mm -hmm. So I see that with Robert Eggers, for instance, where I loved The Witch when it came out in 2015. I thought The Lighthouse was really interesting, although it's a much odder film in some ways. And you know, this past year he does The Northman. And people were asking me, oh, what do you think? I said, it's Robert Eggers with a bigger budget. That's what it is, right? Yeah. He he left A24, I mean, not under any, any animosity. He just chose to work with a different studio, which was totally fine, right? It's just him with a bigger budget. Mm. And so I think we have those folks out there. And I appreciate that about directors who can actually bring right, their expertise and their vision to a project regardless of budget and i believe it was chloe zhao who after she won her oscar for best director right, was approached by marvel and said hey oscar winner right, why don't you come and direct shang chi and she did and I know many colleagues who said, as much, again, as it is a Marvel property, they saw parts of her stylistic signature in that film. Mm -hmm. And so that 
that's interesting to me of people who are able actually to bridge that gap and traverse those worlds. My, again, I'm not as qualified in my opinion as you are academically, but I will say this, take the big budget out of the equation. I still, even though he burned a lot of bridges uh, two years ago is Nolan. Nolan's the dark horse in all this because you know he's either going to bring the most original idea in the world to you or he's going to just completely you know shit the bed right out the bay you know and I I think honestly like Nolan even though he's on elitism with his you know how my movies have to be screened kind of thing I think sometimes he brings ideas that you're just kind of like it just goes blows your little mind that's my opinion anyway. oh, absolutely and I constantly say to folks that if you want to see classic examples of tried and true film techniques that are taken just to the next level right watch chris nolan films right so for example for instance i use an example in my intro course of parallel editing so when we have two narrative strands that are taking place at the same time, it's called, called cross-cutting, right, between two strands. I typically use the sort of massacre scene from The Godfather as an example. But I say, if any of you have seen Inception, Inception cross-cuts the entire film. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so, you know, these people who are rightfully so sort of lauded as being visionary and original, right, are, they know where the bodies are buried, right? They have an intense awareness, right, of film history, right? And what they're doing is not reinventing the wheel, but what they're doing is taking it and putting a different spin on it. Mm -hmm. Okay, Duval Nation, we're going to go ahead and take a small break right here, but we will be right back with the conclusion of this interview with Dr. Andrew Owens. May I suggest you take this time to refresh that drink? And take some super long deep breaths. You know that's right. Clouseau style. Out with the bad air. In with the good. Out with the bad air. In with the good. Please give your attention to a few friends of my show and we will be right back. Hello there, Gigawater gang. I'm Kina, the host of the boozy and delightfully foul mouth comedy podcast, Historical AF. I'm a nerdy public historian that is joined by a special guest each week to deliver funny, weird, spooky, and morbid historical nuggets you never knew you needed in your ear holes. Past topics have included the magical manhood of Russia's mad monk Rasputin, my hot take that aliens did not build the pyramids, serial killers that both my parents happened to meet as children. Listen, I know what you're thinking, Kina, how do you even exist right now? Also, who was it? All right, I'll tell you. Spoiler alert, it was Sean Wayne Gacy and Mark Allen Smith. Anywho, we can't forget the spooky. I've covered topics ranging from the ghost of Anne Boleyn to the night marchers in Hawaii. Don't look at them, guys. If you do, you have to strip naked and you have to lay on the dirt. Dim's the rules. You can listen and subscribe to Historical AF wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Historical AF Pod. And finally, you can check out the website for links to listen, sources, because citing is sexy, photos, and more at historicalafpodcast.com. Okay, bye! Duval Nation, Derek and Mindy Duval here to talk about Jerky Pro, the standard in premium beef jerky products. The Derek Duval Show and Derek and Mindy's Fun With Movies is proud to be sponsored by the team at Jerky Pro. As a veteran, I am always the first to support veteran-owned businesses. 
Setting up shop in 1987 and founded by military and paramilitary veterans, they have set the bar for how beef jerky is processed, flavored, packaged, and sold. With strict quality control standards, Jerky Pro offers many flavors that are sure to please any beef jerky connoisseur. From the standard original flavor to honey glazed, peppered, teriyaki, sweet barbecue, or if you're brave enough, the fierce red hot, there are many flavors guaranteed to entice your palate. Offered in various sized packaging, use promo code DUBALL37, all in capital letters, at checkout to receive a 5% discount. Remember, folks, if your beef jerky is not making your mouth water, then it's not Jerky Pro Beef Jerky. Jerky Pro, the standard in premium beef jerky products. We're Sam's Army and the gang's all here. Sam's Army and the gang's all here. Sam's Army and the gang's all here. For glory, the cup and then to drink some beer. Oi, this is Chad from The Shame. We're listening to The Derek Duvall Show. You can find our stuff at theshameshop.com or listen to it on almost all the streaming services. We'll see you down the pub. Cheers. Teachers, do you ever have these feelings or have been told these things? Do you want Kleenex for your classroom? Maybe you should think about buying your own with your own money. You get the summer off, you can have a second job. Do you really need a pay raise? Oh, do you need to use the restroom? Maybe you can do that in the three minutes while students are changing classes. Boy, sure hope your room doesn't descend into Lord of the Flies in that time. Oh, things are going pretty good for one. Surprise! Budget cuts. Well, you're in luck because we've got a book just for you. Hi, everyone. It's Katie Kinder, educator, speaker, and author of Untold Teaching Truths. I invite you to purchase my book and join this journey as we talk about the wild world of public education. Part memoir, part strategy. It is available on BookBaby, Amazon, or wherever books are sold. Teach on Warriors. We've got this. Are you craving a cinematic thrill? Join Too Many Captains, four friends who choose a new release in theaters and look back at an important film that influenced it. Tune in weekly for your ultimate movie fix. We break down everything from the story structure to the budget versus box office and the masterminds behind cinema classics. Think Damien Chazelle, Catherine Bigelow, Alejandro Gonzalez, and Rick Two. Close enough. We dish hot takes on A-list stars we all know or mispronounce. Like Ralph Fiennes, Seorsi Ronan, and Shewelta Ijefor. You get the gist. Find us at a moviepodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and more. Join the fun as three fanboys and an ADHD buddy dive into film history. Too Many Captains, your film podcast fix. Hi, this is Glenn. And this is Sonia from Echo Valley. And you are listening to The Derek Duval Show. Here's a song called Faces in the Mirror from our album Anarchy and Alchemy.
This is Benjamin Sledge, author of Where Cowards Go to Die. In my award-winning memoir, you'll discover the raw humanity, intricate complexity, and brutal barbarity of those who served in the Iraq and Afghan wars, and the psychological toll it took on modern veterans. You can purchase Where Cowards Go to Die on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or anywhere major books are sold. Look for me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Benjamin C. Sledge. Welcome back to episode 158 of the Dark Duval Show. Let's get right back to it with the conclusion of our interview with the author of the book, Desire After Dark, Contemporary Queer Cultures and the Occultly Marvelous Media, Dr. Andrew Owens, PhD. We have two more fan questions. This next one's an interesting one. Are the Academy Awards out of touch with the casual film goer? Absolutely. How do we fix that? <laughs> no question about it. I think that for a while, as I'm sure you and many folks know, the Academy had floated the idea of introducing a category called Best Popular Film. And many people sort of stood up and said, huh? Like, as opposed to Best Unpopular Film? <laughs> like, And so, you know, it, it, the Academy has always had this problem of trying to shug off an elitism, right? That is by its nature baked into what the Academy Awards are, right? It's a competition. And, and so to hand an award to a film to say, oh, well done, you know, you were the best popular film this year. My first thought, and I was brainstorming this with colleagues and students is, what barometer would you use for that? Would you use box office dollars? Would you use number of screens shown? Would you use theater attendance? You know, what would possibly be the barometer for such a film? Right? Mm -hmm. And by saying this is the best popular film of the year, does that automatically right, sort of take it down a notch in terms of cultural hierarchy? And the answer is yes, mm -hmm. right? because it being popular, right? again, suggests that it is for the everyman, right? Whereas the Oscars like to think of themselves, right, as awarding the best, brightest, and most visionary of what is happening in film that particular year. And so, yeah, the Oscars for a long time have, I would say, and it's only been exacerbated, right, as the history of the Academy has gone on, has gone on, has really even widened that gap between what most people are watching and what they're giving awards to. In some ways, I would say rightfully so, because I am not at all advocating that we should be giving 10 Oscars to the next Marvel movie. Believe me, that's not what I'm advocating for. Right? But I think that we're in an interesting moment where as the structure of Hollywood changes in terms of member corporations of the MPA, the Academy is going to have to change. They are going to have to wrestle with different kinds of content. And so one sort of unresolved question for me, and I think for a lot of people out there, is the newest member of the MPA, of the member corporations, there are six of them. The newest one is Netflix. And of the six, 
corporations, only two are their own boss, Disney and Netflix. And Netflix plays by its own rules. Netflix original productions, which is really what they're in the business of almost exclusively at this point, both television and film, they don't have to go through the rating system. They just release a film and that's how it is. And so in relationship to what other studios are doing, I'm fascinated to see where that's going to go and how the industry deals with a sort of siloed corporation that has to play ball with the rest of the industry. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, is its own boss and says, we can release whatever we want. So last fan question. Now, I already know my answer to this question, but apparently uh, this is going to be interesting based on your expertise on the subject. And this is going to be the most broad question of all is, what is, in your opinion, the greatest film of all time? Uh, (laughs) Oh, yes. I wrote this question three different ways, but this is the most, this is the way I can say it. Yeah. It was my $4,000 question. My basic was why what is the greatest film of all time and why is it Jaws? But again. Ah <laughs> yes. Yes. I have I have great affection for Jaws, I will say. Yeah. Um, well, I, I'll start with answering the question in the negative, which is I do not believe the greatest film of all time, contrary to what the AFI might tell you, it is not Citizen King. <laughs> great. Hundred percent. What the greatest film of all time is, I mean, got me. Um, I just think that it, you know, film is film's a taste culture. You know, film is a taste formation that's about what you gravitate towards. And there are films that, again, are lauded in that category that I think are like watching paint dry. <laughs> I'm just like, why am I watching this? And there are other films where I think, you know, for for me, my favorite film, I will say, personally, my favorite film is John Carpenter's Halloween. The original? uh, The original from 78. I think it is the most damn near perfect 93 minutes of screen time I have ever seen. Mm. And, but that's me, right? And that's fine. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that that that's always been the problem with canons, right? Is that canons sort of crystallize something that was never meant to be crystallized in the first place, Mm. right? That taste cultures exist for a reason. Genres exist for a reason. And Mm. that I think there are certainly films, if not to put an evaluative judgment on them, certainly films that have stood the test of time, right? That are still screened and watched and debated and talked about that have not been lost to the ether of history. But I think to say, you know, is this the greatest film of all time? You could come up with a hundred different metrics, Mm -hmm. right? To measure that. But again, to reinforce, again, contrary to what the AFI will tell you, it is not Citizen Kane. I know that much. (laughs) I have... I have tried to watch Citizen Kane three times. I've gotten through it once, but you know, the, for different reasons, I've had to rewatch it. I can't do it. It bores me to death. It is. It is just not an interesting film. But again, right. and yeah. and again, a lot of a lot of people don't know that when Citizen Kane premiered, it bombed. And watching it, 
And sometimes I'm just like, yep, and rightfully so. <laughs> All right, so we're going to talk about your book in a second, but there is one last question here that's, that's very interesting. And that is, in the last, say, 20 years, movie runtimes have blossomed from 90 minutes to 120 minutes to now 240 minutes and on and on and on. Where where has this gotten to a point where people are going to be spending half a day in a theater? And what can we do to curb it? Oh, Lord, I think we're already there. Um, yeah, I mean, I, it, again, I, as I say to colleagues and students that I, as a lover of film and television, I admittedly have a very short attention span. <laughs> And so, you know, when we get these films, and again, mostly they tend to be in sort of superhero Marvel category where they're, you know, running on three hours. I think the Zack Snyder cut of Justice League is four plus hours. Right? Yeah, something like that. I can't, um, I can't imagine sitting down and watching mm -hmm. a film for that long. It's just the, yeah, and historically, certainly the screen time of films has gotten longer and longer and longer. But that is, and I think it's important for folks to realize, that is a uniquely American phenomenon. In that beginning since the 50s, right, when Hollywood began to tank, right, after the Paramount decision and the classical Hollywood studio system sort of broke up as we know it, that the import of European cinema, when that really started en masse in the 50s, a lot of the cuts that were made on those films were not only for, mostly for sexuality, but also for runtime, because American audiences just couldn't deal with the runtime that European audiences mm -hmm. were used to. Mm -hmm. And I think it's fascinating to look historically at transnationally Right, sort of how long are films and what are people willing to sit through? But also on the flip side of that equation, what do people want out of their box office dollar? Mm -hmm. So I often tell students when I teach Indian cinema and Bollywood that Bollywood films for the most part, with very few exceptions, are three plus hours. Right? That you can bet your bottom dollar, right? That they're three plus hours because Indian audiences are demanding that for their money. They are demanding that kind of length for the money that they are spending at the box office. Hmm. I'm going to say this. I'm going to say this because like I said, I mentioned earlier, superhero films. I am not a big superhero fan. I'm going to give full disclosure. I, I'm not a big Marvel fan. I'm not even a big DC fan. That being said, I grew up reading Batman comic books. So I do have a I do have a love for Batman. That being said, that last Batman movie that came out, three and a half hours. I went and sat, I watched the movie. I did it. I went and watched it. I sat there the whole time nipping apart. Could have cut this scene, could have cut that sequence, and get it down to two hours. But right. again, right. Again. Yeah, and and I think that there are instances, again, this sort of harkens back to earlier parts of our conversation where we are in a moment of a sort of dearth of intellectual IP that what we have are reboots and remakes right? mm -hmm. and origin stories of characters I'm not necessarily sure we needed origin stories for, right? But 
Yeah, in terms of superhero movies, I don't want to seem like I'm unnecessarily shitting on the superhero genre. I think Tim Burton's Batman, the first one from 89, is damn near perfect. Thank you. I agree. I think I think it is I could watch that movie all day. That there I don't think there is a wasted moment of screen time in that film. And I think it's fabulous. I knew I liked you for a reason. <laughs> It's honestly that's one of my it's one of my favorite memories. But you know, my my dad took me to see it. It's one of my favorite movies. Uh, is the '89 yeah. Batman? It just it's a perfect film. Right, same here. It, right, it is damn near perfect. So I want to talk to you about your book, which is by the way, great. This is a great title: Desire After Dark: Contemporary Queer Cultures and Occultly Marvelous Media. Where did the idea to write this book come from? You know, the idea really germinated, and I thought a lot about this when I was writing the introduction to what was this, the book was based on my dissertation. Uh, it's a heavily revised version. And I thought about this a lot. I was like, where did this project start actually? You know, did it start the moment I got at Northwestern and I knew I was going to have to write a dissertation to get a PhD? Did it start somewhere else? And I eventually came to the conclusion it started when i was a very young kid at the public library in my hometown because one of my most vivid memories for childhood and this is how i open the introduction of the book is i remember my mom taking me to the library and at that time you could rent vhs tapes out from the library you could take a couple you have them for a week and return them like a video rental store but the library had them and I remember asking one of the librarians to rent Dracula. And she looked at me, and I'm sure it was kind of in a, not necessarily condescending way, but in sort of a, okay. And she said, you know, do you know which one you'd like? Because obviously there have been many film versions. And I don't think she expected my response, which was, the 1931 universal version with Bela Lugosi, please. And I was like seven at this point. And she was gobsmacked. And so was my mother. And I think that's where this project started. In that my, my love, right, of the horror genre, of, since I was a kid, right? And I think it had a lot to do with the, as I got older, my sense of the otherness that eventually came into my sense of my own sexuality, which is sort of, you know, the basis of the, of the book, not as a memoir by any means, but as I said, the idea that what brings those two sort of camps together of gender and sexuality, specifically queerness and horror, is the otherness. I felt that deeply as a kid, you know, I felt like an outsider. I felt like the one who was never picked for the sports team, right? And in some ways I did gravitate towards a horror genre as a vehicle to sort of live out those fantasies, even momentarily of power, of domination, of agency, right? And that's where I think, you know, when I, knew that I had to write a dissertation, I thought, well, yeah, I mean, let's, let's write about the thing 
that you know. Let's write about the thing that you want to write about. And I think that that's why I still, I, I've talked to you know, countless friends and colleagues who really, by the time they were done with their dissertation, they were like, I never want to see this thing again. You know, I'm done. Or when it, if it did turn into a book manuscript, you know, let it go and said, okay, it's out there in the world and I want to see it again. I still, to this day, have a deep affection for my book. Um, and not to say that I think it's a brilliant masterwork in that it's just a really personal item to me, mm. right? That it is, and a lot of people don't get to necessarily do that with their first book. And I'm lucky that I did. That's awesome. What was the reaction to the book been like? It's been very positive. Um, and I'm again, glad I I'm, as I said, I think we're in a moment of a horror sort of renaissance where people have been looking for different critical takes on the horror genre. And my hope is that I've been able to productively contribute to that conversation. And there has been for quite some time, but certainly in the past, say, five or 10 years, especially on TV, it just, the world is lousy with queer horror. <laughs> like There are just so many queer horror things out there that, I think that I that the project came around at the right time, right? And that it is a deeply historical project that it begins in the 1960s and it goes up until about 2018. And what I hope is again to bring it back to bridging the gap between the academy and popular audiences that people who are watching, say, the Vampire Diaries or the originals. Um, the CW has sort of been the flashpoint of queer horror recently, at least on TV, that those people, I hope if they choose to look at my book, that it gives them context, right? And it gives them a history that this is not new, right? That this has been around for a long time and that the different manifestations that this has taken where queer audiences have gravitated towards the horror genre is what fascinated me the most. Right? And how in very different sociocultural contexts, the genre continued to thrive and audiences continued to gravitate towards it, sometimes against all odds. And one of the examples of that would be when I write about in the third chapter in the 80s, when the AIDS crisis comes around and we have this great fear, certainly uh, under the Reagan administration of AIDS and of queer people potentially infecting other people. The vampire genre just goes through the roof in the 80s. And people are like, well, why? Well, blood exchange, blood transfusion, right? AIDS, blood transfusion, the, the corollary there is just so easy, mm. right? That I wanted to, again, give people the sort of historical context in order to understand the moment that we currently find ourselves in. So what is next for Dr. Owens? Is there another book, maybe? There is, actually, yes. Uh, I am very excited. I am authoring with a very good friend and colleague of mine a 
book that will be forthcoming on the black queer filmmaker Marlon Riggs and specifically on his 1989 experimental documentary Tongues Untied. So that is something that we are both very excited about that Marlon was best known as experimental filmmaker. Tongues Untied is probably his most famous film, but worked extensively in the documentary tradition, unfortunately was lost to AIDS in the 90s. But myself and my colleague and friend who are writing this book together, we went to the West Coast this summer to Stanford, where all of his papers are collected in their special collections library. And we spent a week there looking through his papers. And it was a fascinating experience that I am a deeply, deeply dyed-in-the-wool historian. And I am also a total archive junkie, mm-hmm. right? That if you can give me the original archive of somebody, I will just go nuts. And that was a really great experience that I know will make the project really strong. We just got here in Tulsa um, about a year ago, the complete archive of Bob Dylan. And it has been one of the most popular things. People are lining up. I think there's like a year wait just to get into it. And uh, they have, right. and when I say they have everything, they have everything. And yeah. uh, it's been pretty impressive. Yeah. And there were things in there. One of the, my favorite parts about doing archival research is you go through catalogs that libraries have and they say, oh, you know, this is located in this folder. But oftentimes, well, oftentimes all the times, they're not by any means complete. Right? It'll just say, you know, miscellaneous. Right. And when you look through it, you never know what you're going to find. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things I found when we were doing our trip this summer was before Marlon died, he was in hospice and actually had a tube through his nose and through his throat uh, where he couldn't talk and all he could do was communicate by writing. And they had this legal pad where he was writing between him and nurses and doctors and people who come in to visit him while he was in hospice care before he died. Mm-hmm. And I just remember opening a folder, seeing this thing and just being gobsmacked and saying, you know, I, it, it is, you are touching the last living moments of a person whose life you're trying to do justice to in a historical project. And it was both completely overwhelming, but also very humbling mm-hmm. right? in that uh, I I hope that we can do him and the work justice when the book comes out. So as we enter this final phase of the interview, I always like to ask one fun question, and that is when you aren't lecturing and writing, what do you do for fun? Are there any shows that you're into or anything like that? You know, I'm a big two things that I spend a lot of my time with here in Iowa city is a very sort of as much of a college town as it gets in the United States. Uh, Not much to do outside of that, but I'm a big bar trivia junkie. So my friends and I actually, as soon as I'm uh, done speaking with you this evening, my friends and I are going to play bar trivia. So that's something that we do. I also am a big cook. 
So I enjoy cooking a lot. That's something that I like to do in my spare time as much as I love work. And sometimes it is difficult, especially when you're living in a college town to separate yourself from the institution. Uh, I do that as much as I can. And bar trivia and cooking keep me going. <laughs> the gentleman who does the voice for this show when I'm, you know, the this is the director of all show. His name is Jeff. He is a former Jeopardy contestant. Known him for many, many, many years. Really? He, he is basically the undisputed top dog in bar trivia here in Tulsa. And he goes every week, plays with the team, and it's it's just obscene, the, the knowledge, the most random knowledge that he keeps up here. Um, on top of that, he's just a really, really hilarious guy. So it's really nice to have around. So that I have two very good friends and colleagues who actually teach at Tulsa. I've never oh, really? been. Uh, but I hope to make the trip soon. Yeah. Well, let me know when you do. I'd be like to shake your hand, sir. All yes, right. Absolutely. So as we're going to wind on this interview, what would be the best way for my listeners to follow your adventures online? I am available on all the socials that I am available on both Twitter and Instagram at Andy Owens, 85, A-N-D-Y-O-W-E-N-S 85 for at, at least as long as the bird app is with us, which <laughs> in knows? our current moment could evaporate any moment as far Literally. as we know. Yeah. Right. Uh, but yeah. And please feel free to get in touch with me on either of those platforms. You can also email me at andrew.j.owens at gmail.com. Awesome. All right, Andy, I end my interviews with my absolute favorite question. And the question is this, if the entire planet was listening to this broadcast, what would be the one thing you want to say to the people of Earth? Please love each other. That, that's pretty simple, to the point. All right. The book is Desire After Dark Contemporary Queer Cultures and Occultly Marvelous Media, available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or wherever books are sold. Dr. Andy Owens Thanks ever so much for taking the time to come on the show. I've been looking forward to this for weeks, so I'm glad we could finally make it happen, and it's been an absolute pleasure to speak with you. Thank you. It was a great pleasure. And just like that, Duval Nation, we come to the end of episode 158. I want to thank Dr. Owens for taking the time out of his incredibly busy schedule to speak with me. As you can tell, we had a fantastic conversation I do hope Dr. Owens returns to the show again sometime in the near future. Okay, tune again next time as we showcase another extraordinary person. I have a really good one coming up in a few days, so be sure to keep checking your favorite podcast streaming channel for that episode to drop. Also, I think it's fair to ask you, the listener, have you enjoyed this episode? I truly hope you have, so please go hit that subscribe button to keep up to date for when new episodes drop. Also, if you're feeling generous, drop us a review. We love reading what our listeners have to say about us, good or bad. We are still enjoying our partnership with the amazing Tee Public. The Derek Duvall Show has a great little store on there with everything with our logo on it, including magnets, stickers, and mugs. Plus, we have some really fun t-shirts on there that Mrs. Duvall and I added ourselves. So please go to our website, DerekDuvallShow.com. Go to the banner on the left that says Merch. Click that, and you will be taken to our store on Tee Public. And once again, I want to thank them for being such great partners with the show. On behalf of myself and the entire team here at the Derek Duvall Show, I want to say to each and every one of you listening, the days are getting hotter, but the nights are still for scares. 
Put on a scary film tonight and cuddle up with your significant other and or pet. Frights are meant to be shared, right? Nostar, God bless. And see you next time. Planet Earth. This has been a recording of The Derek Duvall Show, and we thank you for listening. Please go to our website, DerekDuvallShow.com, for links to merchandise and to explore past episodes. Please find us on social media on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Derek Duvall Show.